Bibles with you, would you open up to the book of Joshua? And uh, we're going to continue. Did I have glasses on my head a minute ago? Uh. Hmm. Did I eat them? <laughs> huh? Yeah, I'm starting to sound like that, huh? It's coming out of me. What can I say? <clears throat> Book of Joshua. We pick it up in chapter 11. Just by way of reminder, last time we talked about <clears throat> the comparison between those two battles, between the battle of Ai and the peace that was made with Gibeon. You'll remember the battle of Ai pictures the battle of our flesh. Where, you know, sometimes through self-confidence we think this is a little thing, I can take care of it myself. And we find ourselves in a, in a place of defeat. And, uh, and then ultimately we have to go to the Lord and the Lord shows us, he, he speaks to us about that sin within our camp. That thing that we buried away somewhere that God wants us to deal with, wants us to to confess and receive that forgiveness and be able to move forward in that. And then, after the victory at Ai, we see a battle against the devil. Kind of come in against the people with lies. The Gibeonites come lying. Lying about where they were and who they were. And Joshua stumbles in his battle against the Gibeonites as they try to trick him because he doesn't pray. He doesn't pray. He doesn't seek the Lord, doesn't go before the Lord. And so he makes a, a peace treaty with a people that God had told him beforehand that he, he shouldn't. He shouldn't make that peace with them. He shouldn't make peace with anybody within the land. But he was to, to do battle with them. But when they discovered that they had been tricked, God lays out for them, I believe, that he wants them to keep their oath. If they made a pact, they were going to live by it. God expects us to keep our vows, even if our vows don't work out, even if the vows don't make sense. For Kathy and I, on a personal level, one of the things that, that we feel like God wants us to stand by is, is a house we have in California. A lot of people in California buy these big old expensive houses, and two days later they were worth half of what they paid for it. They didn't feel like they had to keep their vows, their promise. Even though now they're making payments and if they just walk away from it, they could get something for half as much. We didn't feel like God gave us that freedom. And so we paid twice as much for our house that's worth half as much. But you can't sell. But I think there are times in our life where God wants us to, to stay true to the pact we made. Now, for Kathy and I, the Lord brought us to that house, and God's taken care of it all. It has not, to date, been a burden. For Joshua, it's the same way. You know what? I blew it. Joshua messed up. He made this pact, but he stayed faithful to that pact, and God covers him in that. God covers him in it. And one of the cool things for us to realize, as we look at tonight, we'll see a little bit more, but in God's covering of that pact and, and God honoring even the mistakes that, that uh, Joshua makes, it's it, to encourage us. Even if we mess up and we end up somewhere we shouldn't be, and we've done something we shouldn't done, but in that place, 
we stay true to what God wants from us, then God can still bring the victory. God can still do amazing things in that. And as we take a look at it, they keep their oath, even though the Gibeonites lied to them. And, and I think God expected them to keep it. But here's the good news. If God would not tolerate Joshua breaking an oath that he made, the people who lied to him and tricked him into making the oath, and God expected Joshua to keep his promise and to keep his oath and to keep the vows that he had made to the Gibeonites, then how much more does that mean that God will keep his promises and vows to us? He, he expects that from Joshua. Certainly doesn't expect less of himself. The Lord will be faithful even when we are faithless. God is still going to do his perfect work in our life. It's incredible to see God move. Even if we make a mess of it. Even if we mess up. If we keep our eyes on him and we confess and we say, Lord, I messed up then God still can take that mistake and turn it into gold, can he? Sure he can. Sure he can. He does that very same thing with the Gibeonites. You remember last time that the Gibeonites were then set up to be servants in the house of God forever. They were going to be slaves forever, carrying water and wood for the tabernacle, for sacrifices, for the labor, to fill the bronze labor so the priests could wash their hands. Well, here's what we discover when we do a, a, a walk through the scriptures and we, we do a walk through history and we want to see, you know, what, what happened to these people. Well, these people became great servants for Israel. They rose to a place of religious privilege. Gibeon was one of the cities that's going to be given to the line of Aaron, the priesthood. 400 years later, the tabernacle is going to be there. One of David's mighty men who was closest to him is going to be a Gibeonite. When Solomon ascended to his throne, he made the burnt offerings at Gibeon. Later, about 500 years before Christ, in the time of Zerubbabel, when the nation is coming out of the Babylonian captivity and rebuilding the temple, 500 Gibeonites go with them to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. They always, from this point forward, are doing what Joshua gave them to do. And as a result of being close in proximity to the temple, to the sacrifices, to the worship, to all those things that were going on, there's no record in the scriptures of that ever backfiring on the children of Israel. A lot of other things, but not that. Because God can redeem our mistakes. Because God can work, especially when we acknowledge, we recognize. Yeah, I think I messed that up. The beautiful thing about that is God's able. He is able to do abundantly beyond what we can even dream or imagine. He's able. He's able to do that perfect work. So as we take a look then, uh, at chapter 10, as we begin in chapter 10 of Joshua, we're going to see God begin to tie this up in a little bow. The Gibeonites lied, they become servants, okay, that's happened. But God's going to use it to further the conquest 
of the southern kingdoms of the land of Canaan. Here's how it begins. Now come to pass, when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had taken Ai and utterly destroyed it, and how he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king, and how the inhabitants of the Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, they feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of their royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were mighty. When we look at chapter 10, we get a little bit of insight into Gibeah. Gibeah didn't do what they did because they were weak. Gibeonites didn't do what they did because, because you know, they knew that, 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 that they were a smaller or weaker. What they understood was, no matter how strong they were, God had given the land to the nation of Israel. When we study the book of Joshua, you must have said in your mind that God had given that area 400 years to repent that every man and woman and child in that land was aware that God wanted their repentance and had rejected that repentance and every man woman and child was afraid because God's people were coming and they knew that God had given the people the land and still they would not repent so they would face judgment so when we look at this, don't look at it like this is some innocent group of people that, that faces something that they really didn't have any understanding of. Because over and over again, you're going to hear by the king's mouths, by the people's mouths, we knew that God had given you the land. We knew what God did in Egypt. We knew what God did in Jericho. We knew what God did in Ai. But still, what do they do? They gather for battle except for the Gibeonites who lied and made a peace treaty with them. But again, God redeemed that. So, so understand that they know what's going on. This is not a people group who's, who's blown away by, the, by the, the, the butchery that's taken place in this battle. God gave opportunity for repentance. Opportunity for repentance is rejected. Then God's judgment falls and it will fall again. Whether it's now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now, imagine how bad it will be then. Whatever time that God's judgment will come, and the book of Revelation, along with the book of Joshua, follows very neatly and tidily together. You can see the same things in the conquest of Joshua that you're going to see in the conquest of another Joshua, Jesus Christ, when he returns. And when he returns, it's too late to repent. Man was given, to date, 2,000 years to acknowledge the truth of who Jesus Christ is. When he returns, it's too late to say, oh, I guess now that I see you, I believe. It's too late. And judgment will fall based on man's choice to hear, see, or know about the truth, but choose, I will not have this man to rule over me. And that judgment will come. Now, it's even more clear when we start to look at Adonai Zedek, who is the king of Jerusalem. Jerusalem means foundations of peace or the city of peace. 
The, the name itself. That literally it means the foundations of peace. Adonai Zedek means the Lord of Righteousness. So someone called the Lord of Righteousness is king of the city of peace. And it becomes a, a little minuscule picture of the battles that are going to take place between the Antichrist and the Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation. As we take a look, Adonai Zedek, what's he going to do? He's going to bring together a conglomeration of other kings. And what are they going to do? They're going to go to war. They're going to go to war. We're going to see in a moment to those who have placed themselves in submission to Almighty God. That's who they're going to go award against. Adonai Zedek, the, the false Lord of Righteousness, who is the, the king of the city of peace, who for as long as I have ever read, studied, was able to read the paper or watch the news, has never been peace. There has always been peace talks, but not peace. Because there won't be peace in the land until the true Lord of Righteousness, Jesus Christ, rules and reigns at that moment there will be peace on earth but until that time apart from knowing god we will know no peace it's not there well adonai zedek he he sees he knows what's going on they fear greatly because gibeah was a great city and they had mighty men so now you know those guys would or could in their estimation fight with israel and so they're, they're thinking now Israel's even more powerful, even more mighty, because the Gibeonites are with them. So therefore Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, Deber, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, that we may attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel." Man, there, there's so much in this verse that I, that I want to point your attention to. One, come up and help me as we attack Gibeon. So the Gibeonites at this point become a picture for us of those who have placed their life in submission to the Lord. Because ultimately that's what the offer Joshua gave them. Be slaves to God, working in his temple, carrying water and wood. And so they say, we're going to go to war against the Gibeonites. Why? First off... He says, because they made peace with Joshua. How many times in our life have we experienced war with the rulers of this world or of this age as a result of making peace with our Joshua, Jesus Christ? Peter says that when a sinner comes out of the world and he begins to follow the, the Lord, that their friends wonder why don't they come to the parties like they used to? Why aren't they drinking like they used to? What is the matter with this? Are they holier than thou? I mean, Peter literally says that. Which is so often the case of what we see in a life that, that places itself in submission to the Lord, that immediately a battle occurs because you've made peace with your Joshua. Joshua, by the way, is the Hebrew word... The same name as Jesus. Yehoshua is the Hebrew. Jesus is the Greek. So Joshua becomes that picture. So first, you made peace with Joshua. They made peace with Joshua. So we're going to go after them. And now they're friends of the children of Israel. 
And what do we see in the church? Didn't Jesus Christ call for the church to be those who would pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Who would, by their, by our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, drive the, the Jew to a place of jealousy, desiring that relationship that had one time been a part of Israel, that they would, by jealousy, be drawn to a relationship once again? As a result, I mean, I see in here this, this whole picture. Gibeah, because they've now got a relationship with Joshua, with Jesus. Here comes the, the enemies of the Lord against them. The enemies of the land. Who could make, could have made peace? Who could have repented? Who could have said, Lord, save me? When we read the book of Revelation, what are we going to read over and over and over again? All these horrible things happening, and still they would not repent. And still they would not ask to be saved. So the same we see here. What's the other beef? Friends of Israel. Friends of Israel. Friends of the nation. Friends with the children of Israel. So this is the charges. And so what does he do? Just like the Antichrist is going to do at some point, he gathers together the armies of the world and he brings them against this little nation that's not even, what, 40 miles wide. So that's like the time it takes us to travel from here to Twin and back. That's as wide as the country is. It's so easy to travel from point to point. Even the length of Israel is small, tiny, tiny place. Tiny little place. And the, the Antichrist, he's going to come against them. Even as we see a shadow of the Antichrist bringing all the armies that he can gather in Canaan against Gibeah. And who's going to rescue them? Who will they call out to? Who are they going to ask, the Gibeonites who lied, and who are liars and cheaters and all these other things? Who are they going to call upon? They're going to call on Joshua, Jesus. And what's he going to do? Is he going to say, you know, this is, what you, this is karma. You lied to me, and then I made this peace treaty with you that I should have never made with you, and now I discover, well... All your enemy, all your friends who used to be, or all your enemies are now your friends, or all your friends used to, but anyway, you understand what I'm saying. They're coming, and I'm just going to let them wipe you out, and the problem solved. Right? That's not what he does. That's not what he's going to do. As they, as they make their charge, as they decide that they're going to go, we see the same kind of picture as we see at the battle of Armageddon again. Therefore the five kings, in verse 5 of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, they gathered together and went up, they and all their armies, and camped before Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua... At the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not forsake your servants. Come up to us quickly. Save us. Save now. Know what the Hebrew word is for that? Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. Save 
Now save, save us, help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. Man, I love that Joshua is a man of integrity. I love that Joshua is a man who, even though he swore to his own hurt, and he made peace with people who should have been his enemies, even though he did all that, when they called for help, he went. And look what God has done. God has said, you know, Joshua, even though you made this mistake, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. So you don't have to go from city to city to city to city and fight all these armies. I'm going to bring them all to you at once. I'm going to bring them all to you in one day. I'm going to line them up for you. And God, even in in the very next verse, And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them. 366 times in the Bible. I think you'll find that phrase. Do not be afraid. Fear not. Why? Because that's one of the things that governs the decisions that we make. So the book of Proverbs tells us how to decide whether we're, we're being guided by, by the proper motivation. It says, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. But the fear of man is a snare. If it's the fear of man that is guiding us because we're afraid of what man's going to do or what man's going to say, that is always going to be a snare for us. But if the reason, our motivation for moving is the fear of God, that's the beginning of wisdom. Because I respect God, because I love God, because I want to bring honor to the Lord. If that's my motivation, then I'm living in the fear of God. And that's where I want to be. But if I'm afraid because... You know, little Johnny or little Susie not going to like me anymore. They're going to think something poor of me if I actually share the truth with them or whatever the case might be. If I do that, that's going to be, you know, a big struggle, a big hurdle for me to have to overcome because my life is now I'm walking right into a snare, a trap for the enemy. That's why the scripture declares to you and I that we cast aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Walk in the fear of God. Let Him be the motivation behind the reason we do things. So the Lord says to them, Do not be afraid of them, for I have delivered them into your hand. God speaks in the past tense. He says to Joshua, who is on his way there, Don't be afraid. I've already given them to you. They haven't fought yet. Hadn't even seen them yet. But God says, don't be afraid. It is already decided. It is already over. It is already done. We just need to put our faith and trust in the Lord. Not a man of them will stand before you. Joshua, don't be afraid. You just go. Not one is going to stand before you. Not one will be able to stand before you. So the scripture goes on and tells us, Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. Now what that verse doesn't tell us is it's 25 miles from Gilgal to Gibeon. And it's an ascent. You remember that the scripture said, so Joshua ascended from Gilgal. By the way, that means it's uphill. 
They're going to go from below sea level to 3,300 feet above sea level in a 25-mile forced march. And they're going to march the army all night long so that they can be there when the sun comes up the next day. Now, I don't know if the five kings are expecting them to do that or not. But that is how Joshua comes to their rescue all night long. Do I have to worry about my army being tired? About the men being wore out? I don't have to worry about it. God said he's given us a victory already. We just got to show up. We just got to be there. We just have to report for duty. We just have to present ourselves as tools of righteousness into God's hands and allow God to do his work. We just say, here I am, Lord, like Isaiah, right? Here I am, use me. Here I am, prepared for you to do this work that you want to do. So, in verse 10 it says, So the Lord routed them before Israel and killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and chased them along the road that goes to Beth Horon and struck them down as far as Azekah and Machedah. And it happened that as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth Horon, that the Lord cast large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. And there were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. Just in case, children of Israel are going to think it's because we're really bad. The Lord obliterates the army with hailstones, large hailstones. The scripture lays out for us in the book of Deuteronomy that the penalty for blasphemy, the penalty of rejecting the Lord was stoning. And so we see God stoning the armies of the Canaanites. Large hailstones. In case you're wondering where you've read that before, it was in the book of Revelation, the final judgment prior to the return of Jesus Christ. Hailstones. Here we see these hailstones cast. Now, the really wild thing about having an opportunity to have seen this, if you can imagine the way they did battle in those days is not quite the way we do battle today where we stand several hundred yards apart, or sometimes it's tighter than that, but, and we lob pieces of lead at one another. So to see a hail storm come and obliterate the enemy, it, well, that'd, be, that'd be you know something maybe we could see such a thing. But when you're fighting hand-to-hand, face-to-face, shoulder-to-shoulder in a big glob, and hailstones start wiping out the enemy and missing everybody else. Well, that now you see the hand of God. Now you see God's deliverance. And the cool thing is, we look at it in the beginning, it says the Lord routed them, the Lord chased them, the Lord killed them, which is exactly what he told them he was going to do for them in the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, when we were going through... Uh, Deuteronomy, the Lord made a promise to the children of Israel as they they followed Him, as they trusted in Him. He says in uh, 
in verse 22 of chapter 7, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. The Lord routed them. Little by little, you'll be unable to destroy them all at once, lest the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will deliver them over to you and will inflict defeat upon them until they are destroyed. And he will deliver their kings into your hands and you will destroy their name from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. God promised them that back in the, in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, at the time of Moses' death and Joshua entering into the land, <clears throat> we're seeing the fulfillment of that promise. As the Lord gives them the victory, the hailstones come down. In verse 12 it says, Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. He said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the people had revenge upon their enemies. That's a pretty incredible... It's a long day of Joshua. People, a lot of people have problems with a long day of Joshua. I don't really have a problem with a long day of Joshua. Because I don't have a problem with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. God made it. God can do whatever he wants. God can, can suspend all the laws of science. God doesn't have to work within the realms of science. He doesn't. What exactly is the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ? When's the last time you saw a guy float up into the heavens? I have never seen that before. Short of strapping a rocket to him, we can't make that happen. But God is able. God is able to do that. The other problem people have with this is they, they do this ridiculous thing where they say, well, the sun's not really moving. So for Joshua to say, sun stands, and the, and the Bible to say the sun stood still, well, that's just ridiculous because the sun's not moving. Yeah, the same guy who got up in the morning and looked to find out when the sunrise was. When's the sunrise? Well, the sun's not really moving. Why do you call it a sunrise then? Because that's the view from observation, isn't it? When you watch the sun move across the sky, are you thinking to yourself, the sun's not really moving, the earth is moving? No, from observation, we say, oh, look, it's noon, the sun's high noon, the sun's right up here in the middle. The sun's moving, the sun's setting. Language from observation. That's when Jesus said, I am the door. Did he mean he had hinges and a knob? But all of a sudden we want to take the, the language and apply these ridiculous concepts to it. Joshua prayed that the sun would stop. Does that mean that God stopped the earth from rotating? Well, we know if the earth stops rotating, bad things happen. But we also know, I want to say it was October 4th, 1972, that there was a fierce storm that slowed the rotation of the earth and created a, not major difference, but a long day as a result of the storm. 
What about a tsunami and earthquake in Japan? Did that change anything globally? Last I checked, it did change something globally, didn't it? Yes, it did. So I don't have a problem with the long day of Joshua. I believe that God could just as easily reach down and slow the earth rotation until they got the light they needed. Or God could have just hung out in the heavens and with the Shekinah glory of God provided their light. Or the light could have refracted or reflected any number of ways, whatever God decided, so that the children of Israel had the time that they needed to have. C.S. Lewis said, he, he has a quote in a, in a book C.S. Lewis wrote called Miracles. It says, the mind which asks for the non-miraculous Christianity is a mind in the process of relapsing from Christianity to religion. You can't take the miraculous out. Because with the miraculous goes resurrection. With the miraculous goes all the tenets of Christian orthodoxy. They all hinge on it. Including the word of God. The, the authoritative word of God. It goes out the window. Joshua called out to the Lord. And the Lord answered his prayer. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And there has been no day like that before it or after it that the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Now, basically from verse 13 through 15, we have a quotation out of the book of Jasher, which was a book of, of poetry <coughs> that spoke about different things that uh, occurred during the conquest of Joshua. We don't have the book, doesn't exist anymore. No, you can't look at it, it's not there. The, the scripture is the only place that talks about the book of Jasher, and this is that, uh, like a, a, a quotation, an insert here, from the book of Jasher. It says, Then Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to the camp at Gilgal. So at verse 15... That's the quote out of Jasher from 13 through 15. Why is that important? Because in a minute we're going to read that Joshua went to Mecca until the battle was over and he had destroyed the five kings that we're going to meet in a moment that are hidden in a cave. Jasher is telling us about the miracle that God did and then where Joshua went when the whole battle's over. So hopefully you can understand what I'm saying. If you can't, well, you'll catch up in just a minute because we'll get there together. <clears throat> So we see the long day of Joshua. But these five kings, remember Adonai, Zedek, and the other kings that were with him, had hidden themselves in a cave at Machedah. And it was told Joshua, saying, The five kings have, found, have been found hidden in the cave of Machedah. Don't you love leadership like that? Hey, let's set up our armies. Guys, you go to war. We're going to hide in this cave here. You come get us when it's all over. used to be that a leader got the name because he was leading not hiding in a cave not deciding that he was so important they had to stay in this tent 
or that he would stay back here and watch everything unfold on a TV screen or a computer screen. And he could play war like we play video games or like kids play video games. It's just a dot on the screen. That's not a real life, is it? That's the way these leaders were. Hiding in a cave. Hanging out in the back. But it should remind us of something. It should sound familiar to you. If you're a student of the Word of God and you've gone through the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 6, the earth dwellers are the people who have rejected the Lord and only want what they can have on this earth. They've rejected Him. They do something. They hide in caves. And they cry out to the rocks to fall on them and destroy them rather than to fall into the hands of the Lamb. They don't want to submit, repent, change, receive salvation. They'd rather be killed by the rocks. Here we have these kings gathered together in a cave, gathered in this place. So Joshua said... (coughs) Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men to guard it. But do not stay there yourselves, but pursue your enemies and attack their rear guard. Do not allow them to enter their cities, for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hands. So the Lord gives this long day of Joshua. Now, I, honest, to be honest with you, I had a, probably a little bit harder time with the long day of Joshua until I came to Idaho. Because the days are way longer here. When I can go outside at 10 o'clock at night and the sun is still in the sky, I think I'm in Alaska again. And the sun never went down there. Tremendously long days in Idaho. Joshua might not have needed to pray here because we have longer. God gives us that so we can pull more more weeds. <laughs> Spray. Yes, I, I killed my grass. I killed my grass. I am not a very good farmer. I'll try harder next time. So he puts these guards in front of this cave. And he says, go, now go take the, your enemies. And all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Makedah in peace. And no one moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. Now that little insight. Now, so we see Joshua made his camp at Makedah, not Gilgal. Gilgal's where he's going to go when it's all over. We'll see that at the end. But in the midst of the battle, while they're chasing down the enemies and the kings are in the caves and all this stuff is going on, they're going to make camp at Makedah. Makedah is the place where where all these other armies had come from. So they're they're going to set there in that place and that's where they're going to make camp. And not anyone would move his tongue against any of the children of Israel. So throughout the land of Canaan, people are afraid. Because they see what God is doing. But you can see also the wickedness of their heart. Because they still will not repent, but they come against them. Right? They didn't try to say, wait, wait, no call for peace. No, what they do? They brought their armies and they went to war. Let's fight. Let's fight. What are we going to see people do in the end when Jesus Christ returns? Are they going to say, finally, I see the Lord. There he is in the sky, coming in the sky with all of his saints behind him. When's the last time you've seen somebody do that? And is your initial thought, 
Get a gun? But that's what the world's going to do, right? That's how the battle of Armageddon occurs. They all make war with the Lamb when He returns. So it's not, I need to see Him to believe in Him. These people have already rejected the Lord, closed their heart to Him, and as a result, they will face the judgment that God promised. For you will stand before a holy and righteous God in your own sin with no hope of redemption apart from Jesus Christ. And that's the choice they have made. That's the decision. We don't want to lose sight of that decision that they've made. So, here they are at the camp. They're gathered together in this camp. And Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring out those five kings to me from the cave. And they did so. They brought out those five kings to him from the cave. The king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon. And so it was, when they brought out those kings to Joshua, that Joshua called for all the men of Israel... And he said to the captains of the men of war who went with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these men. And they drew near and put their feet on their necks. What's Joshua saying? God's given them to you. Wherever you place the sole of your foot, God has given that to you. They're defeated. You just hiked 25 miles on a 3,300 foot ascent all night long. Then you fought a battle all day. You watched hailstones wipe out more of the enemy than you could kill. Then you see Joshua, your commander, cry out to the Lord and, and God grants a longer day so that an utter destruction can be given to the armies, that you don't have to fight them every time you go back to their cities now because their armies are... are a, have been obliterated and joshua brings out those kings he says guys put your foot on their necks man it's it's done the battle is given to you and then joshua says to them what the lord had said to him so many times joshua said to them do not be afraid nor be dismayed be strong and of good courage for the luck for thus the lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight What a great verse to put on your fridge that you might remember that all the promises of God in Christ Jesus are yes and amen. That whatever enemy you're fighting, currently we know Anna Lures has has got a battle with cancer. She had her surgery yesterday. She's doing good today. Uh, doctors are excited about it. One of the, one of the neat things that, that Anna shared is through some, for some reason, her body made her colon bigger, longer than it needed to be. So the doctors cut out part of her colon and they had plenty of colon still there to, to reattach and take care of doing the things they needed to do to get rid of the cancer. Do you see the providence of God in that? I mean, it's not for some reason your body, but it's the Lord God of heaven knew before you were born that this was the journey that you were going to take. 
And God will give you everything you need to do battle with your enemies, to give you the victory. Don't be afraid or dismayed. For this is what God will do to all of your enemies. Whether your enemies are those for which you can put your hands on, they're tangible, or whether your enemies are utterly invisible. For we do not battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, rulers of the darkness of this age. Who gives us the victory? Jesus Christ. Don't be afraid or dismayed. For So this is what the Lord your God will do to all your enemies. What's the last enemy he's going to do that to? Death. Last enemy is death. Oh, isn't that what Paul said? Paul said, you're going to be able to say to death, death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? Why? Because you're not putting me in the ground and my life doesn't just end. I go to an eternity with my Savior, Jesus Christ. I go to an eternity of all good and no bad. I go to an eternity where every day is infinitely better than the best day you've ever had on earth. Man, death will be destroyed, obliterated. Don't be afraid or dismayed. For this is what the Lord your God will do to all your enemies. Can any of the enemies against the church or against the Lord have victory over us? The Lord would declare, what can they do? Take your life? Well, okay. What's the downside? Because the upside is eternity with Jesus Christ. The downside is a moment. The upside is eternal. And we need to learn to live for the eternal and not for the moment. Can we live for the moment? We're going to be off balance, out of shape, in a place where we oughtn't to be. But when we live for eternity, like Paul, you'd be able to say, man, I'm ready. For, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Why? Because it's more Christ than living. But nevertheless, to be here with you is more needful for me. So Paul says, hey, I need to be here. Great. I'm going to be here and I'm going to finish my race. But I'm not going to sweat the small stuff. Rule number one. Don't sweat the small stuff. Rule number two. It's all small stuff. Don't sweat it. I know we worry. I worry. I get freaked out about stuff too, just like everybody else does. But there's no reason to worry. There's no reason to fret because this is what God is going to do to all your enemies. We won. The battle, folks, is, is concluded. It's done. Jesus said at the cross, it's not almost finished. It's not getting pretty close to being done. He said, it is finished. It is accomplished. It's done. It's over. So just like the past tense that God would say to Joshua, I have delivered you, Jesus Christ would say the same thing to us. I have delivered you. There's nothing anyone can do to you 
to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus your Lord. Nothing can separate. In the Greek, nothing means no things. Yes, nothing. Nothing can separate us. So we see this same promise. And then afterward, Joshua struck them and killed them. Hanged them on five trees. (coughs) And they were hanging on the trees until the evening. And so it was. At the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded and took them down from the trees, cast them into the cave where they had been hidden and laid large stones against the cave's mouth, which remain until this very day. You know, when we study the Bible, we discover that different characters within the Bible had different things that they did. Different things that they were, that they were known for doing. Whether it was digging wells. Or building altars. You know, wherever they went, they built an altar. Wherever they went, they they dug a well. Joshua, wherever he went, he made stones of remembrance. Why? Why would he do that? So when you come back to this place with your kids, and they say to you, what is that big pile of stones in front of that cave for? You tell them, about God's deliverance. You see, the job of passing on the information, the knowledge, the experience that we've had with the Lord Jesus Christ to our children does not fall on Sunday school or does not fall on someone else. It falls on us. And will we be men and women like Joshua who build stones of remembrance? who would teach the children the ways that they ought to go. How was that taught to them? Through the stones of remembrance. Look at what God did. Look at what God's done for my family. Look at what God did here. Look at what God did there. Pointing those things out. That's why Joshua becomes a man of setting up these stones of remembrance that people might remember. Now, from this moment... He goes on in verse 28, and we're going to see the the conclusion of the southern conquest. Okay, so basically, when we take a look at Joshua's conquest, there are four phases. This is the conclusion of the third phase. The first phase was on the eastern side. Remember, Sihon and Og, Moses actually fought those battles and and delivered the children of Israel. from Bashan, Gilead, then on this side of the Jordan, you got Jericho and the Jordan Valley. Then you have the central theater. From Jericho, they cut a, a, a swath across the middle of the, of the country. They're going to divide and conquer. They cut that swath through the central area of Canaan, where they, they have the victory over the highlands, over Gibeon and the plain of Sharon. And then, when this battle occurs, they're going to face the five kingdoms of the south. And they're going to move that direction. And he's going to, we're going to read about each one of these cities being, uh, being taken by Joshua. So on that day, Joshua took Makeda and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them, all the people who were in it. He let none remain. He also did to the king of Makeda as he had done to the king of Jericho. So we have the fall of Makeda. Then we have the fall of Libna. Then Joshua passed from Makeda, and all Israel went with him to Libna. And they fought against Libna, and the Lord also delivered 
and its king into the hand of Israel. He struck it, and all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, he let none remain in it, but did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then we have the fall of Lachish. In verse 31, Then Joshua passed from Libna and all Israel with him to Lachish, and they encamped against and fought against it. And the Lord delivered Lachish into the hand of Israel, who struck it on the second day, and struck it and all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, according to all that he had done to Libna. Then Horam, king of Gezer, came up against Lachish, and Joshua struck him and his people until he left him none remaining. From Lachish, Joshua is going to go to Eglon, the fall of Eglon we see next. Each place, God fulfills his promise to the children of Israel. Wherever you put the sole of your foot, I will give you the victory. And everywhere they went, this whole southern conquest should be a reminder for us of, of, of like the six-day war. I mean, we're literally, we're looking at a, a period of time, you know, substantially uh, small. And the children of Israel are going from city to city to city, day here, second day here, third day here. I mean, they're just going through it. And God is giving them the victory. God's giving them the victory as they go. So Joshua went up to Eglon and all of Israel with him. Oh, I'm sorry. From Lachish, Joshua went to Eglon and all Israel with him. And they encamped against it and fought against it. And they took it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. And all the people who were in it were utterly destroyed that day, according to all that had been done to Lachish. So Joshua went from Eglon with all Israel with him to Hebron. And they fought against it. And they took it and struck it with the edge of the sword. It's king, all its cities, all the people who were in it. He left none remaining according to all that he had done to Eglon, but utterly destroyed it and all the people who were in it. Then Joshua returned with all of Israel with him to Debir, and they fought against it. He took it and its king and all its cities. They struck them with the edge of the sword, utterly destroyed all the people who were in it. He left none remaining as he had done to Hebron. So he did to Debir and its king as he had done also to Libna and its king. So Joshua conquered all the land, the mountain country in the south, and the lowland and the wilderness slopes, and all their kings. He left none remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breed, as the Lord God of Israel had commanded him. Now, that doesn't mean he wiped out every city. It means every city that he wiped out, he utterly wiped out. But what we're going to discover, just like the Lord promised in Deuteronomy, as we read before we began, he's going to give him the country little by little. And what we're going to see after the northern conquest, so Joshua is going to go across the center, the east, central, north, south. <clears throat> then he's going to divvy up the land and give it to the tribes. And now it's the tribes' responsibilities to go in and finish the clean out. But Joshua will have utterly abolished all the big war machines of the Canaanites. So tribe by tribe, they could go in and clean it out. I want you to recognize something. We just went through and listed all these names, and I know sometimes that gets boring, and we tune out, and, and our head starts to bounce on the back of the chair. It's okay. I, mine used to do that too. But there's a city you didn't read. When we started this, we started with the king of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's not named. Jerusalem doesn't get conquered until the time of David. 
Jerusalem doesn't become the capital of Israel, the children of Israel, until the time of David. Oh, they killed the king and they obliterated the armies. But when the people are brought into the land, when the tribes come into the land, this is what they said. Man, we've been fighting for so long. I just want to take it easy. And so they stopped. And the next thing they knew, all those armies that Joshua had taken care of were building back up. Now they're fighting the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Amorites again. Why? Our battle here is never over. This is not our home. We are in enemy territory. If you were in the military and you parachuted behind enemy lines... The thought is not going to come into your mind. You know what? I'm just going to kick back and take it easy. I'm just going to get myself a little hut somewhere and I'm just going to live there. I'm in enemy territory. There's no peace in enemy territory. The battle doesn't stop until we see Jesus face to face. And we got to have that mindset. We got to understand. If the children of Israel at this time, they, 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 The greatest kingdom under David and Solomon is going to control 30,000 square miles. The promised borders from God is 300,000 square miles. And it was already given to them. All they had to do was what? Put the sole of their foot there. But God said, I'm not going to move them if you don't step. You've got to walk by faith. But you you can understand how they get tired of fighting. We get tired of fighting, don't we? How many times have we said, oh, I'm so tired of it. Just this daily, when am I going to get a break? When's it going to slow down? When's it going to stop? When you see Jesus. You are a soldier. And the war is not over. So stop looking for a break. The only time you find a guy looking for a break in the Bible, Jesus called him a fool. Because he worked all his life. He said, I'm going to build barns and bigger barns. I'm going to put all my stuff in them bigger barns. And, and then I'm going to kick back and I'm going to take it easy. And God said, you fool, your soul is required of you now. Now. We enter into the rest when we see Jesus because Jesus Christ is our Sabbath rest. We enter into the rest when we enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because the exciting thing is, he says, without me, you can do nothing. You can't do anything on your own. It's got to be a life in Christ Jesus. And when your life's in me, then Jesus says, I'll do it. So we can enter into that time of rest, as the book of Hebrews says, right now. We enter into that time of rest, but recognize the battles never stop. Battles never stop. It's okay. We're just living in a dot right now. Don't start living for that one moment. Live for eternity. That point that will last forever. Will there be no more to- no tears and no sorrow? Isn't it worth living for that? Rather than for the little dot I might grab now? For the little things I might gain in this place? Joshua conquered all the land, but ultimately... 
Joshua conquered them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon. All these kings in their land Joshua took at one time. Why? Because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all of Israel with him to the camp of Gilgal. Now we're caught up to verse 15. They all went back. Southern conquest is over. Time for the northern conquest to begin. The promise to us is, wherever you put the sole of your foot. You got a, any strong towers in your life? Any, any enemy strongholds that need to come down? Things you're struggling with? You know, anger, frustration, drugs, alcohol. I don't know, the myriad of things that get in our life and become the enemy. But God says, if you put your foot, if you'll step in faith, if you'll walk in faith, I'll give you the victory. The other exciting thing is, even if we mess up, it all worked out in the end, didn't it? Failure is never final for the believer. Failure is never final. Ask Samson. Failure is never fatal. God is always able. He's always able. So what is it that gives us the victory? First John tells First John chapter five, it's our faith. That we look to God, that we look to Jesus, that we look to Him. For he is the one who delivers us. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just thank you for this time. We can come before you, Lord. We thank you for an opportunity to, to just enter in, Lord, and to know, God, that indeed you are the one who gives victory. And Lord, I understand that sometimes we get tired of the fight. Sometimes we get tired of the battle. But Lord, your word declares to us that we are to pray always and not to lose heart. To look into Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. And Jesus, in his call to his disciples, he said, come, follow me. But he also told them, the Son of God has nowhere to lay his head. Times aren't going to be easy. It's not always going to be smooth. But his promise is, it will be worth it. For I do not consider it worthy to be compared this present suffering with the glory which shall be revealed in us when we see Jesus face to face. God, help us keep our eyes on the eternal, not the temporal. Lord, help us keep our eyes on the victory that you've already won for us at the cross. The victory is assured. All we need to do is walk by faith and not by sight. So God, grant unto us that victory. Give unto us that opportunity, Lord, as we...
truly seek to honor you, Lord, to know (laughs) the battle is done. We just got to walk by faith and watch God work. Move among us in our lives in a mighty way as we seek to see the strongholds of our lives torn down. The strongholds of the enemy, the fear, the shame, the anguish, the struggle with sin. For these are the areas of our battle today. But you guarantee the victory if we will walk by faith. Thank you, Lord. We look forward to that time that we will spend with you. Until then, may we be faithful here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.